Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron. So, Republicans, the grand old party or the GOP for short, for decades, the voiceover, even the hero of American conservatives has been this guy. Those who would trade our freedom for the soup kitchen of the welfare state have told us they have a utopian solution of peace without victory. They call their policy accommodation. And they say if we'll only avoid any direct confrontation with the enemy, he'll forget his evil ways and learn to love us. That's Ronald Reagan. He was speaking about military conflict and strategy in 1964. This is before he even ran for president. All who oppose them are indicted as warmongers. They say we offer simple answers to complex problems. Well, perhaps there is a simple answer, not an easy answer, but simple. If you and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right. We can... Now, this is the speech that brought Reagan to the national stage. And since his presidency, since basically that speech, he's been one of and perhaps the defining figure of American conservatism. But now... We have this guy. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. That's President Donald Trump talking about his flagship policy of building a wall along the southern border of the United States. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Conservatism in America is changing. But it's not just conservatives. It's society at large. And so this episode... We're diving into the cracks and fractures that some would say have resulted in this new American conservatism. I think that this period is going to be a time when Republicans fight over what it means to be the Republican Party, whether it's still a conservative party, as I hope it will be, or whether it's becoming something more like uh, a kind of Trumpian populist party, uh, which would be something new in American politics. That's Yuval Levin. I'm Yuval Levin. I'm a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington and editor of National Affairs magazine. Yuval has written a book called The Fractured Republic. This book takes a look at the lines of discord and disagreement in contemporary American society. Well, the book was written just before the beginning of the election season and before it was clear that Trump would be a a strong candidate. But I think it's easier now to see than it was even then that America is very much a fractured and divided society. It feels fractured to a lot of Americans, especially because the, the norm in our politics is rooted in a sense of what the country was really in the middle of the 20th century, a sense of America at its height after the Second World War. And so many of our political cliches are rooted in that nostalgia that the sense we have now is that we're divided, we're fragmented, fractured. And of course, it's true in a lot of ways, not only politically is American politics uh, polarized, but it's true in economic terms when you look at inequality, it's true in cultural terms, it's true in the ways that people live. And so voters in America have a sense that we have less of a common experience, less of a common national life than we used to. And I argue in the book that that has a lot to do with the flavor of our politics at the moment, and certainly with the way in which the last election went. Nostalgia. 
the longing for a previous time. So what era or what time are Americans longing for? And did this idealized past ever really exist? It's a great question. This is, of course, implicit in some respects, though at times it becomes explicit. Donald Trump just ran last year uh, on the slogan of making America great again, and he was asked uh, by the New York Times in the spring of the election year, when was America last great? And after bumbling around the question a little bit, he ended up in the 1950s. Um, That's a long time ago. But if you listen to politicians in both parties, I do think they seem to walk around with a sense of when America was last great that has something to do with the image that's in Trump's mind, this this time when you could walk down to uh, any major downtown city in America and get a factory job and keep it for life, and then your kids would have it. It's so much in the background of what people both on the left and on the right talk about. On the right, they tend to focus more on the cultural side of that, on the left, on the economic side, but it's the same time they have in mind. And I think whether it really existed is exactly the right question to ask, because in a lot of ways, it simply didn't exist. Now, it is true that the United States at mid-century uh, was exceptionally unified in some respects, but that's true if you were white. Uh, that's true if you were in some parts of the country and not others. Uh, certainly, uh, black voters in America have much less to look back fondly to that period, uh, women in many respects as well. And so it, it's a golden age for some voters, and it certainly seems to be a golden age for a lot of Trump voters. It's also true for some Democratic voters, but the idea that the solutions to the problems of contemporary America is something to go back to that time, I think they're unrealistic both in that you can't go back and in that really at the end of the day the country simply wouldn't want to. Uh, We have gained a lot by the changes that have happened since then in ways that ought to speak to people both on the left and on the right, but we just tend to emphasize more of what we've lost in our politics now, and again, that that, that that contributes to the flavor of our political debates enormously. We have very different visions of this idealized past on the right and left. And because of these and related attitudes, we have intensely divided politics right now. Yet, Yuval says that we also have very weak political parties. Right now, they're not calling the shots. And I think that has to do with the kind of exhaustion of our political order. It's part of what I'm trying to get at in talking about the nostalgia of that time, part of what it means to have just gone through an election year where two 70-year-olds ran against each other to be president of the United States. Uh, in a lot of ways, the, the, the two political parties are actually united against much of the public on some of the issues that were the biggest issues in this election. So on on immigration policy, on trade policy... George W. Bush and Barack Obama basically were in the same place. In a lot of ways, on foreign policy in general, they were in the same place. Uh, And much of the public just wasn't in that place, which is not normally how we think about polarization and partisanship. But there's certainly a sense that the political system is not working, is not representing the public, is not addressing concerns and anxieties, and something else is bubbling up. You see that in different ways all over the West, but it's certainly powerfully evident now in America. So if the public has taken hold of American conservatism, what figure defines it? What what person? Does Donald Trump now define contemporary conservatism and and the GOP? This is really a crucial question, and and, uh, I I could just say it's too soon to say, but um, I, I think the fact that it's an open question will have a lot to do with defining how this opening chapter of the Trump presidency is going to look. Trump is in a different place than a lot of Republicans in Washington. Um, 
and he's so on many important issues, including some of the ones that are most important to him. So far, Republican members of Congress do seem to be awfully impressed with the hold that Trump has on their voters, and that does tend to move politicians, and they will so far incline to fall into line with Trump. But it does seem to me that over time, and especially if that hold on their voters does wane some, um, there are a lot of differences that are likely to open up. And I think that this period is going to be a time when Republicans fight over what it means to be the Republican Party, whether it's still a conservative party, as I hope it will be, or whether it's becoming something more like uh, a kind of Trumpian populist party, uh, which would be something new in American politics. So uh, that that question is really going to, to, to have a lot to do with defining how this first year goes. So... A couple of years ago, following Mitt Romney's loss to Barack Obama in 2012, the Republican Party was at another crossroads. So they conducted a full analysis and report on what the future of the GOP should be. At that point, it seemed especially important to appeal to more Latino voters to the members of the party who were conducting this analysis. But now, is that future still something that many Republicans would like to see. I mean, and and even if they do still want to see that, is this future still possible? Or has Trump changed the ballgame so drastically that this version of a Republican future can't even happen anymore? Yeah. You know, one of the hardest things to see just now is that not everything has changed. This was a very, very close election. Uh, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic candidate, won the popular vote by three million votes. Uh, Trump won the electoral vote very barely by winning narrow majorities in a few key states. And so most of what was true before the election is still true. Um, the, the demographic challenges that the Republican Party was looking at, that is its weakness with younger voters and with some of the minority populations that are increasing in size, especially Hispanic voters, are still a problem. Those younger voters still, by, by sheer definition, are the future. Um, and Hispanic voters are still a growing part of the American electorate. And so all of those challenges are still there for Republicans. I think more than that, the basic, the, 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 the basic structure of American politics has not been transformed by the simple fact that Donald Trump won the election. The question of whether it will be transformed is a question about how Trump will function as president. So I, I do think that the Republican Party still confronts some of the very basic problems that it has confronted, uh, it also has some of the basic strengths that it's had, and its its greatest strength in our two-party system, each party's greatest strength is the other party, um, and it, its greatest strength is that the left in America is having a lot of trouble speaking to the median voter. Um, but that doesn't mean that Republicans are doing much better at that, and I think the, the core challenge still remains that, and the question is, does Trump help or hurt? I don't think we know the answer yet. Let's keep running with these questions of contemporary conservatism. I'm joined now by my co-host Chris Gilson and Alex Sundstrom, a board member of Republicans Overseas UK, an organization of American Republicans living abroad around the world. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Well, thanks for having me, Denise. So let's get started with the, the gulf between the Republican Party establishment and the president. As Yuval Levin said, the distance between, uh, between these two entities is closing. And he, he attributed that to the fact that a lot of members of Congress are taking note of the fact that President Trump has quite a, 
an attraction, quite a popularity among Republican voters, among their base. So I'm, I'm curious to hear if you think that that gap is closing, or do you think the gap between classic conservatism and this new strand of populism is as wide as ever? You know, I think it remains to be seen. I think what you what you have in the party is this is similar to what's happening on the Democratic Party side. You have for a long time a version of conservatism as embodied by the Paul Ryans and the GOP leadership that largely um, pr- promoted institutional interests and in particular the interests of capital. So they would they have historically opposed uh, meaningful curbs on immigration in part because they really like the uh, the economic growth that comes from an influx of an influx of cheap labor and they uh, sort of have taken positions on these economic issues that may be pretty distinct from the base. And they've largely tried to resolve that tension by uh, focusing more on social issues, on the, on the makeup of the Supreme Court, on um, you know, gay rights or um, abortion rights or social issues where you know, these are important issues, but, but first, the ability of national politics to make a meaningful difference and how they really play out is kind of limited. So, so do you think that the, the gap is closing itself or, or is it really I think it has fractured? to close. I think it has to close a little bit. I think the, the, because the, the party base went for a Trump, right? They went for someone who broke with the GOP orthodoxy on trade, mm-hmm. on immigration, on issues where they'd largely been left out of the conversation and where mm-hmm. their economic interests hadn't been hadn't been really pursued. I think people certainly you can't you can't ignore that. So I think the the ability of Paul Ryan to, for example, get an immigration bill through that is that makes more cosmetic than than substantive changes in terms of the flow of immigrants into the country, I think that's going to be severely limited. So right. I think that on an on an issue that important, that close to sort of the um, you know the populist views and the views, by the way, of, of most of the electorate, I think the GOP will have to be, will have to come closer to those. Okay, sure. Now, now talking specifically about the party, um, I know, I know, Chris, you had, you had some thoughts about this, of how this, how this plays out with some of the characters who Alex just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, thinking about what um, Eva Levin said in his interview, talked about how, she, how the party hasn't changed all that much, even though Trump's come, come in. Uh, throughout the Obama years, we had a really recalcitrant Republican caucus, exemplified by the 30-odd member, member Freedom Caucus in, in the House. And actually, we're seeing a return to that lack of ability f- by the GOP to actually do any meaningful legislating. And I'd be interested to know what, what you thought about that, because it seems to me that the party hasn't changed that much internally in terms of what it does in Congress. And it's a, it is very fractured in and of itself. I think that's right. I think it's, I think it's the same challenge um, that you see on the Democratic side which is this sort of an anti-establishment challenge, but coming from a different direction a bit. Because if you look at the Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party before it, that was really about small government conservatism, the idea that government's involvement in in the economy was what's giving giving you problems, and if we just shrunk it, um, that that would... And that's kind of been the view of the... the the ideological view of the National Review line of conservatism for a long time. Trump comes from the opposite side. Mm -hmm. He comes from the sort of the side that, look, the government can help you um, by... through through the levers that it controls on immigration and on on trade, um, this is a, the populist view is different from this sort of freedom wing. It's almost like you have a bell curve, and Trump's on the one end, and the freedom the freedom caucus is on the other. So I think that he's kind of a natural enemy of, of theirs. And you know, but as you point out, there are a lot of factions within the GOP, and it's going to be difficult for Trump to push through a legislative agenda while they're still in place. I think it's would be very difficult had Bernie Sanders won to push through meaningful economic reform over the sort of neoliberal Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. And I think this is um, anti-establishment uh, candidates by definition aren't in the establishment. And once they arrive, they don't have a, uh, a cohort of similarly uh, similarly uh, ideological people to push their agenda through. It ends up being inherently difficult. So just just quickly, do you think that the uh, in legislating and the way that business is done in Congress is going to bounce around 
between these three kind of poles, the sort of the Trump populism, the Freedom Caucus, and then the kind of the Ryan sort of compromise conservatism, because it seems to me that we're going to really kind of maneuver between them, and it's going to be hard for any one particular faction to win. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 I guess the question is what, what, what to make of this current failure of healthcare reform has this weakened the freedom caucus and i think you know maybe it is maybe it has maybe it's weak. maybe if, if if um polling coming out of this thinks trump tried to broker a reasonably good deal and they stood in his way does that make it easier potentially to get through to get everyone lined up on tax reform or on immigration reform i mean that's that's an open question i think he's it's it's, it's so early in his presidency that it's hard to see like you know how these relationships are going to play out do you think that this Fracture, or maybe let's call it a mosaic. Rather, sure. do you do you see that as a strength of modern conservatism? Is this something that actually is bringing more people into the party, appealing to to different frames of mind, different perspectives, or is this something that actually is ripping apart a party at its seams? You know, I think it's a, I think it's maybe both. I mean, I think if you if you look at the strengths of the party, I mean, the, the Republicans have have traditionally stood for freedom, right? Economic freedom, personal freedom, the absence of uh, of government intervention, and that can really Really, uh, you know, that can lead lead you in a lot of different directions, right? And, and I think there's a lot of it opens you up to a lot of ideological diversity. I think if you look at the challenges facing the the party right now and compare them to the challenges on the left, I would say that the the Democrats have a really big problem of sort of rely, ideological reliance on identity politics. That so much of their opposition to Trump has been around these you know through these traditional lenses, reaching out to their base and saying, "You're a woman, you're a minority. You should be violently opposed to the Trump administration for the." following in 10 reasons. And they haven't, and I think that's become so core to their, to their policy response that it makes it very difficult for them to engage, to develop alternative solutions. And I think to the, maybe to the Republicans' credit, they're not as hampered by identity politics and they're more able to engage in policy debate. I mean, I think there's a real risk with Trump that Trump um, and sort of similar nationalist parties in Europe become a, become a kind of reverse identity politics because you could say if you're the white voter, um, white lower income voter voting for Trump that, you know, even if he doesn't accomplish anything, you're going to be happy with the result because he didn't, you know, say mean things about you the way that the Democrats did, right? So this is the, the same identity politics that could be played um, by the Republicans, but I don't think it's as it's as common. I think they resist it more, and I think there is a, a more of a, a real genuine desire to find good policy solutions. Now, now, now given though that you're citing uh, specifically the economic pressures on voters as something that um, the current populist movement is really speaking to. Why don't you think, though, that it's it's not speaking to certain members of the Democratic base that have, have stayed steadfast and if not, like, even become stronger pillars of the Democratic base, particularly African-American voters, um, Latino voters? Why are they not as enticed by this populist message of economic inclusion as the classic Trump voter is? Well, I think, you know, they've, they've traditionally voted for Democrats. And if you look at the actual vote share, I mean, Trump got a larger share of African-Americans and a larger share of Hispanics than Romney did. So he sort of did better with traditional Republicans and worse with actually purely uh, the white voters, I think, than, than Romney. So but I think there's a, there's a real challenge there. I think it's a messaging challenge. And Trump, uh, for better or for worse, in part, maybe his own comments kind of allowed himself to be played as this, you know, not, not a, like racist, sexist bigot is kind of how that, that's the, uh, the constant media message. And I think he needs to do a better job. 
um, and or his successor needs to do a better job of reaching across the aisle to African Americans and Hispanics. So, for example, like I have heard very little sort of specifically Hispanic outreach on immigration, mm-hmm. but it's not it's not that impossible. I mean, Cesar Chavez, the great Hispanic labor organizer himself, was very anti illegal immigration because he represented farm workers, and uh, the more immigration you had, the less the lower the farm workers' wages were. Mm-hmm. But I think that type of message, um, you know, even if Trump hasn't been able to effectively deliver it as he might, that's I think there's a bit there's a real opening there. I think that's a real opportunity for the populist movement to expand by trying to break through this language of identity politics and uniting people around their economic interests. Okay, sure. So, so another thing that I think is 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 fair to to bring up is the um, the ability of current conservatism to produce policy measures and and to produce some some change since they control Senate, the House, the White House, a lot of state legislatures, a lot of governors' mansions, and yet we're a little ways into um, arguably the most important part of a, a presidency, the first hundred days, and we haven't seen policy produced. So, what? Where are we going to go with that? What, what are we going to see from Republicans and conservatisms in terms of policy uh, priorities? Yeah, two things there. One is, I think, from the perspective of the Trump voter, as a Trump voter, I think a lot of the things that are that are being there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that's not splashy that can make a big difference. Withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a huge step. Oh, sure. Because this sure. is a sort of parallel uh, system of governance where America enters into these sort of secret, or at least not heavily scrutinized, trade agreements that really erode sovereignty and are really bad. The fact that he's not doing that is a huge plus. Hmm. On immigration, the fact that we're not sort of making it, you know, expanding the base of immigrants coming into the country and competing for jobs, I think is great. Um, now, whether there's able, whether they're able to achieve meaningful legislative change in the other direction, be it on immigration and on some of these other trade issues, I think it remains to be seen. But it's early enough in the presidency, I see meaningful sort of meaningful movement along those along those lines. On uh, legislative uh, change generally, I think tax reform is going to happen. I think the you know this this is an area where the U.S. corporate tax rate and individual tax rates are simply too high and, and not very competitive to be honest. I think that's something that that um, they can coalesce around. But I think it's going to be a challenge, right? It's going to be a challenge because of this sort of gulfs within the gulfs within the GOP and the gulf between um, you know conservatives and Democrats will make it Republicans and Democrats will make it uh, difficult to see a lot of big legislative change. I think that's just the reality we face. So some people have described uh, the new political spectrum as going from open to closed rather than from left to right. I'm I'm interested to see what your reaction is to that because you do you know you cited um, leaving the TPP and limiting immigration as as positive things to come out of this populist presidency so far. So do you do you? What do you think of that characterization of the new political spectrum? Well, I think it's it's you frame it in such a way as like uh, you know open is good and being open is open open minds open hearts. Why wouldn't who wouldn't want to be open? Who would want to close themselves right. off to the world? So I think that there's sort of a the, negative frame. Yeah, the, cho- the choice of, the choice of uh, terms frames it. No, but I think I think I would say it a little differently. I would say it's really more about are you as an as a as a politician going to act in the interests of the people you represent or not. Hmm. Right, because he would say that to the extent that we're opening our borders and we're letting other people come into the country, and so that's really good for people in the third world. But what about what about the, the uh, Americans that don't have jobs? Right? What about the Americans whose labor force participation rate is at its lowest in forty years? I think it's very very um, easy to adopt positions that are kind of really good for you know capital owners, really good for economic growth. Let's flood the EU with lots of refugees and uh, talk about their political plight. But really, what we're doing is increasing the population so we can grow a way out of uh, sort of debt. 
debt overhangs. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's very very easy to adopt those kinds of um, you know traditional um, feel good sounding policies, but that actually harm your countrymen. And it's and it's more difficult to make for to set forth a case for why you shouldn't do that. Why? And I think I, but I think setting aside the connotations of open versus closed, I think that is this sort of nationalism, um, interests of the people versus the interests of you know the globalists and their managerial the managerial elite and those types of people. I think that is a very meaningful conflict that is going to continue to come to the fore as uh, the distribution of wealth becomes more and more unequal. So, so open or not rather than open to close, maybe more like accountable to self-interested might be representative versus non-representative. Sure. Right? You, okay. you, can, you can pick your, you know, rather yeah, than, yeah. rather than attaching labels, you, you know, you can pick them there, pick labels that are less, uh, um, Divisive. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be really interested to know your thoughts on where the, the future of the Republican Party lies. Uh, when we spoke to Yuval Levin, we asked him, you know, is, is Trump sort of a blip? I think, is the Republican Party going to change or, or kind of stay the same? Is, is the Republican Party you know, a few years from uh, in the past going to be the same as the Republican Party 10 years from now? We talked a bit about what was framed as openness and closeness. I mean, in the past, the Republican Party has been very outward looking, in, both in terms of foreign interventions and trade. And now we're seeing a return to sort of a more nationalistic framing because of Trump. Do you think that will outlast Trump, whether or not he's four or eight years in the Oval Office? I think the thing that's really going to outlast Trump is the the kind of the death knell of small government conservatism. Because I think this the 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 idea, and it's a really appealing one, and ideologically, it's you know it's, it's really tempting. The idea that if you if you as a government kind of withdraw and allow the economy to operate with minimal intervention, that people will do better. I think the the problem with that, as we've seen, has been this really really profound effect of automation on on and um, trade global trade generally on the American workforce. I mean, I think the people are just not going to vote for politicians that don't offer some sort of broad economic solutions like Trump does. And I think the party's going to have to move in that direction. Um, so I think that's a real, uh, you know, it's, it's a disappointment for a lot of uh, for a lot of libertarians. And I think even for for you all, Evan, his suggestion that sort of how we have devolution to, um, you know, state state governments and local governments and allow people to craft their own solutions. It is fundamentally that's coming from a fundamental place of libertarianism, freedom, government withdrawal. But I'm just not sure that's politically going to be feasible. Well, that's it for this episode of The Ballpark. Thank you to Yuval Levin and Alex Sundstrom. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donzelman, and also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're the cat's meow. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Next month at the ballpark. The Democratic Party is is now so many different groups, you know, such a enormous constellation of interest groups that in some ways the interests completely contradict one another. We're crossing over to the other side of the aisle to take a look at American liberalism. And as Yogi Berra used to say, it ain't over till it's over. And now it's over. Thanks for listening.
Cool. Great. That's everything I need. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah that's pretty much. 